Welcome to 2D Pokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthod, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. It's July 25th, and Robbie, we haven't done a podcast in a little while. I think it's time we treat our listeners to a little preview, a preview of the season. We're going to do our uh, opponent previews today for the first six games of the season. I'm pretty excited about it. How can you not be? Uh, the preview mags are out. Bill Connolly is nearing the end of his 130-team preview. I guess not nearing the end, but he's just actually finished Virginia Tech yesterday, and Miami dropped today. So uh, we're starting to get into about as much information as the outside pundits are going to provide on Virginia Tech, but as well as the other ACC teams. So I see this as full throttle. We're we're past ACC media days. We're past SEC media. We're almost done with them. We're down to the I think group of five schools that are doing media days right now. I think it's a it's a great time. This is where things start to get ramped up. Yeah, these are both my favorite and my least favorite podcasts we do all year because it's the first taste of the football season after we've you know been out of it for a little while. And I like just checking out like what each team on our schedule is going to look like. But it is a lot of work for you and I because it creates a baseline for all the knowledge for us for the rest of the season. And I know both of us, we kind of forget how much uh, how much time it takes to like look into these teams the way that we should. Yeah, and I try and read all the magazines and I try and go through all the previews and then go through the websites and compare all notes and... Names are misspelled across the magazines, across the <laughs> websites. And sometimes I have to go to the rosters. It's uh, it's not a, a small amount of work that we put in, even when you're using uh, a bunch of different resources that other people have compiled. And they have a ton of people on their team compiling all those resources as well. So it's, it's a lot, but it's an exciting part of the year to take a first look. Um, and uh, I don't know. What do you think? We do a cheers to kick this off? Yeah, man. Give us a cheers. I would go uh, uh, a cheers right now to uh, um, moving forward with the season and getting past the off-season doldrums and a lot of the bad things that have happened to Virginia Tech over the past three months or four months. Uh, So let's start focusing on the positive. I think Fuente during the ACC Media Days said, we're going to talk a lot about youth. And then we're going to move on. And after that, there's no excuses. So here's a cheers to, um, you know, some of the bad things have happened, but I'm also looking at some of the positives it means for Virginia Tech down the road. Cheers to a clean slate, man. Just a couple news and notes before we get into it. And just like once you did, we're going to talk about those couple of bad things and move on. And we have to just mentioned that Mook Reynolds was dismissed from the team. That's a little bit of old news at this point. Uh, he got involved with the wacky weed and <laughs> messed around and got himself a, a felony intent to distribute charge, I believe. He has a court date at some point in the near future here. And, um, you know, that was just too much for a coach. And he, he chose the team over the player, as he uh, talked about at the media days, which and- makes a lot of sense. And I don't know how closely everybody followed that, but I think Fuente made it clear that regardless of what it is, whether that gets dropped to a misdemeanor or no matter what happens, he's off the team. So there's no, his court date is forthcoming. His decision to be on, or the decision for whether he's on the team is final, is 
pretty much everything that was said about that. So the court date has no relevance on whether he's with the team. It's done. Yep. And then the other bit of bad news was the decommitment of Cameron, my boy. Cameron <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> Didn't last too long. We got excited about it, I think, in our last podcast. He was the number one recruit in our class, uh, four-star across the board. And he hasn't ruled out recommitting to the Hokies, but whenever a decommitment happens, uh, the odds are low that the guy's coming back. Yeah, Fuente's done a good job. I think uh, it, I forget who mentioned it. I think it might have been Joe that mentioned it with the key play that, or somebody, or maybe it's Alex that Fuente's done a good job of trying to get people back that have decommitted. This was such a weird commitment in the first place that it just makes me pretty suspect. I, and, you know, sorry, I hope he ends up in a good place and where he wants to be from a program standpoint. And, you know, we'll move forward. That's that's how I think about it. I'm not going to get too worried about it in, in the offseason. It was kind of a weird situation in the first place. Yeah, we weren't in his top eight. Then he committed it to us kind of out of nowhere. And then the commitment only lasted a month. I you know, he's trying to sort out his recruitment, so we wish him the best. Adonis Alexander was selected in the supplemental draft. We're moving on to the good news now. Uh, a good news for Adonis. Again, not great news for us. We would love to have him on the team again. He's a very talented player. But uh, Fuente kind of vouched for him that he was trying to get back on track, and the Redskins took him. So that's kind of cool. Redskins, once again, they are all over Hokies players. <laughs> It's been incredible. Um, the, the, I know the, three in this draft season for them alone. And well, the last five years it's even been, it's been massive. Yeah. The number of people that have been going to the Redskins. And I, I know that there's uh, some tie in there with uh, the coaching staff, but um, uh, they're getting deep on uh, the Hokies lineup there. For sure. And the last uh, news item was the watch lists are out. Uh, Josh Jackson and Ricky Walker are both on watch list. Jackson is on the Maxwell Award watch list, which is a Player of the Year award. And Walker's on the Bednarik, the Nagurski, and the Outland Trophy Award watch lists. Um, the first two are for like def- top defenders, and the Outland's for top interior linemen. So I, I guess that can go to offense or defense, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And Oscar Bradburn, I think, just hit a watch list today. The, oh, Auss- really? the Aussie hit uh, one of the uh, the kicking the kicking ones. for his booming punts. I like it. Uh, yeah, I like it. As long as he protects his, the back of his head, then you know, it's yeah. all good. <laughs> Let's move on to these previews. I'm going to start with just what Virginia Tech's baseline is. We're not going to go too deep into Tech because we'll do that in a in a future podcast. But the magazines. They're kind of a mixed bag on us right now. Athlon has us at 16. We are picked second in the Coastal behind Miami again for the second year in a row. Phil Steele, on the other hand, has us far lower at 40 in his preseason poll. Uh, that's that's quite a discrepancy. Now, Phil's magazine comes out a little bit later, but he still had Mook and Webb and Adonis in our starting trio, and he had us at 40. So think about where he would have put us if he knew all those guys weren't going to be there. Um, it's a little disconcerting considering Mr. Steele always praises himself on having the best prognostication of any magazine out there, like 20 years in a row or whatever it is. So that's a little concerning he has us that low. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. 
Uh, I could go either way. I think that there was a lot of, all of the magazines were scrambling to kind of catch up with what happened with Virginia Tech. I know that uh, Athlon didn't get it in there in time. Uh, they still had Adonis. Uh, they had Webb in, and they had Mook in there as well. And so they had us pretty high. I don't know how quickly and what time frame that those all came out because they were literally publishing at the time that a lot of these announcements came out. So... Uh, Steele could have made some changes at the end just to get the ranking right or his you know power ranking right. I guess yeah, is, potentially. And I'm not so sure about that. I would be. Um, I don't. I don't find it that that crazy, right? I mean, the, the even Athlon. Everybody was talking about us being potentially top forty, um, a top forty team with what we have going on right now and what we lost and what we didn't expect to lose as part of the draft. So. I don't think it's that crazy. It's a, it's definitely lower than I would have expected, but you know, I, I think it's strange, but I also think us up at some of the other rankings that high are also crazy, but that's also because they didn't, I don't think they took into account Mook and, and Adonis and, and, and losing people like Webb. Right. For example, the projected S and P plus from Bill Connolly and football outsiders is 21st in the, in the country. And, that it seems reasonable, but he didn't factor in those losses either. And he even said it's going to fall once he updates the rosters in, in a couple weeks here. Uh, and he said that finish- on his podcast and in his preview, he said it's going to fall once I do yeah. rerun the numbers. So if anybody's looking at that thinking <laughs> that that's not going to be the same when he uh, factors that in. And if you think about the discrepancy between Athlon and Phil Steele and then the S&P being somewhere in the middle – it comes down to all the coin flip games we're going to have in the coastal and just in, in general on our schedule um, with Notre Dame and FSU. It, it's uh, you, you lose the Duke game and then all of a sudden you're 40th and not 20th. You know what I mean? They, like It's going to make a big difference. Yep. Uh, and we're going to get into some of that as we talk about the teams, but the whole, the whole coastal division, like every game, is practically going to be a coin flip game, depending like, is it at home? Is it on the road? You know, are, is a team dealing with injuries? Are the young guys getting up to speed? All these things are going to factor in and we're going to have one of those swing seasons. I feel like. Yeah. And we talked about it and we'll get into it here shortly, but I, I didn't recognize, I knew it was going to be tough in the ACC this year, just from how level set a lot of the teams were and rebuilding some teams, improving that weren't that good. Otherwise, um, once I started digging into the details, uh, I didn't realize how much of a coin flip so many games are going to be in the ACC. Um, and I think Bill and and had put it pretty pointedly when he said any one of these teams in the ACC could be a top 40 team. There's probably a couple exceptions out of like 14, but pretty much any one of these teams could be a top 40 team at the end of the year. So there's... Um, I think that's a good level set as we go into these previews because it was shocking to me when I started looking at rosters and started looking at what these teams are bringing back that weren't as good or are were really good but might come back down to earth. Um, I think it could be an exciting year, although it is going to lead to the circle of uh, death, I think, or, or whatever the caption is where everybody yeah, beats yeah, yeah. everybody. <laughs> There's only one team uh. that's going to escape it this year, I think. Is, is it the circle of death or the circle of mediocrity? I can't yeah, remember. This, like, there's a name for it. I think it's the circle uh, of mediocrity. <laughs> so. 
But all right, so here's what we're going to do with the previews. Like I said, we're doing the first six games of the season tonight in this podcast, and we're going to try to limit it to eight minutes per team because I know Robbie and I tend to ramble and this could end up being, you know, a hundred minute long podcast. So we're going to try to limit each preview to eight minutes. Um, if we, if we shorten up William and Mary a bit, maybe we could, uh, spend some more time on FSU and, uh, Notre Dame and that kind of thing. So let's, uh, let's fire it up with Florida state labor day, Monday, September 3rd, 8 PM. It's going to be on national television. Uh, I'm extremely excited for this game. You tear into some of the details, you you get a little nervous, but I, I am still just, I can't wait. It's the first game of the season, and to have such a spotlight, uh, I'm psyched about it. Last year, Florida State was 7-6. and six. It was their worst season since 2009, which was Bowden's last year, and they finished 43rd in the S&P. Their projections haven't suffered, even with that bad season. They got a first-year head coach in Willie Taggart, and Athlon has them at 13th, Phil Steele has them at 18th, and the projected S&P Plus has them at 18th as well. Uh, their experience rank is 71st, so right down the middle of FBS, but they're 34th in O-line rank nationally, which means all those young guys that had to play last year uh, and how many hits the quarterback took because of it, that's going to be a lot better for them. Their offensive line should have uh, a lot of starts under their belt. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the first-year coach, Willie Taggart, and what do you think he's going to bring to this team, Robbie? Yeah, and I'm stealing a lot of this from what I've heard about. I followed Oregon a little bit closely, just if you go solid verbal on any of them. Obviously, if solid verbal, you're going to hear about it, <laughs> what Willie Taggart brings to the table. Um, I think it's interesting that if you look at the conservatism of Jimbo Fisher and what Willie Taggart's going to bring to the table, it's going to be a lot more uh, pace it's going to be a lot faster. Uh, he's going to use a lot of the athletes that you can recruit, recruit in Florida. So I think it's actually going to be a breath of fresh air for that organization. I think it could be dangerous for the rest of the ACC bringing him in if he does what we think he can and what he has kind of um, you know shown at Oregon under that system. So um, he's got a lot of blue blood uh, ties into that organization. He's his family's from there. He's going to be able to recruit. Well, he has already recruited well, and it's going to be a lot more fat, fast paced, less conservative, um, more fun. Uh, as, as it was said on uh, a, a lot of different places uh, with Willie Taggart in there. So as much as I'm not excited about facing them, I think it's going to be more fun for the FSU program and better for the ACC and doesn't bode very well for us over the long term. In this year, it's his first year, so we'll see what ends up happening. He puts on the on the on the field from a coaching perspective. Yeah, he's he's going to speed it up. He's going to go tempo and he likes to generally have a running quarterback as well. Uh and that's an interesting way to start off talking about their offense because they have these two quarterbacks, DeAndre Francois, who tore his ACL in the first game against Alabama last year, and then James Blackman, the true freshman that had to step in and play the rest of the season um, and take a beating, like I said, because of that O-line. And they're both back. Francois has had some other off-the-field issues and may not be fully healthy. And so there's a question going into game one is who's going to be the starting quarterback? If you're asking Vegas, they've got Blackman, Penciled in as the starter, uh, at least favorite to be the starter. And then both preview magazines also had that. So uh, I'm guessing it's going to be him. 
I think I'd rather face him as he's not as good a runner as Francois, and that's going to be a big part of Willie Taggart's offense. I think if Francois was fully healthy and you know kept his nose clean all the time, he would be the starter, but I think it's going to be Blackman. I agree. I think it's probably going to be Blackman, but they're not in a bad spot. Assuming Francois keeps his nose clean and is healthy, they're in a good spot. They have two good quarterbacks, relatively good quarterbacks. So regardless of what happens, we're going into a game against a decent quarterback position. It may be one or the other, but they have two people that have started. I mean, Francois was all of 2016. Blackman took over for most of 2017. They both have experience. So it's not a cakewalk. Either way, we're going. Um, one fits the system, I think, better than the other, but that's that's generally it. The quarterback's going to be aided a lot by the better offensive line and the fact that they're absolutely loaded at running back. This team is, I mean, they got Cam Akers, who was an absolute stud last year, 1,000 yards, seven touchdowns, over five yards of carry. Uh, Jacques Patrick, uh, he was last year's starter, I think, before Cam Akers really came on. He had 700 yards. And Kalan Laybourne, that kid that committed in the Lamborghini, he was a red shirt last year, so he's going to be a freshman this year, and he's eligible. He apparently was tearing up spring ball. So they've got a lot of options. So whoever it is, um, you know, they're going to have the benefit of having these weapons at running back. And even though two of their top receivers are gone, this whole, you know, Nyquan Murray is a, pretty much a beast at wide receiver. And they have so many athletes on that roster as it is. Yeah, I think running back is going to be absolutely one of the best in the country in that position. Um, you have three players that could probably do really well. Um, and Cam Akers is just an absolute stud. And that's replacing Dalvin Cook, who was even like uh, he kind of set the standard for what you could do at, at, at Florida State in recent years. And the wide receiver position um, there's a lot of youth, but it's a lot of talented youth. So the, the offense is probably not going to be struggling. The really question comes I, for me down to the quarterback position on the offense is what, what gets put out on the field and, and how does everybody react to it? Yeah, I, uh, I'm just hoping that they don't have a full grasp of the scheme. I know it's a lot easier to grasp than Jimbo's scheme was. Jimbo had a complicated pro style system and this is going to be a lot more player friendly with going with tempo with Taggart but it's still year one it's still game one I hope that it's kind of an advantage for Bud and our defense that they're they're still trying to figure out their rhythm let's talk about Florida State's defense uh, they lost Derwin James they lost Derek Nadi they lost Josh Sweat uh, and there's a bunch of other guys they're having to replace I think Phil Steele had it 124th nationally and percent of their tackles are returning. So virtually every person that made a tackle last year is, is pretty much gone. They have a few returning starters. I think uh, it's four, but uh, it was two starters back on the defensive line. Not exactly guys who are making a ton of tackles and uh, maybe one in the back end. So they lost a lot to early enrollees in the draft uh, similar to us and they lost a bunch of seniors as well. So if if I had this really like these this team is similar to our team. Would you say that? Like they have so much talent and youth on defense and the offense is, you know, working its way through 
some changeover. I, I feel like there's a certain kinship between our team and this team. Yeah, I think a defensive line, I have no question that a defensive line is going to be good for them. Uh, if you remember DeMarcus Christmas, we talked about him last year. I think we talked about him two years ago. Um, so he's one of the returning uh, starters. He's a senior now. Um, he's a stud, and he's 308 pounds of just badass that causes a lot of disruption. And he was overlooked a lot of times because they had so much talent uh, on that defense. But he is very talented. Um, they have uh, Marvin Wilson coming in, who's a blue chip. They have, I think the defensive line is going to be dangerous. I think where they are going to struggle a little bit is that linebacker. And I think that's where they've had some some turnover um, in that position. So I agree with you. It, it's actually, you know, if you look at where people think our defense is going to sit, people feel more comfortable with our defensive line. Our linebackers are all pretty green and just kind of fresh. And our defensive backs may not be as fresh, although that's turned into that that situation. But that's kind of the the next area that we're struggling. So I think we're uh, very similar, and it's very reminiscent on both sides of um, uh, Virginia Tech and Florida State in the way that we're looking at the defense this year. So I would agree with with your points. I think that their defense, um, just by what they've been recruiting, gives them. Uh, a little bit of an advantage, assuming that recruiting rankings uh, turn into production on the field. Yeah, they are far more talented. Uh, even though there's only a couple starters back on the D line and none in linebacker, like all of those guys are four and five stars that are going to be playing. Uh, they're the son of Derek Brooks, legendary uh, linebacker in the NFL. DeKalon Brooks is a freshman, and he might end up winning their star linebacker spot uh that's what they call it uh i think it's probably similar to the whip as an outside linebacker spot and then uh their dbs there's just you look at the recruiting rankings of those guys and it's just ridiculous like every single one is such a high-end recruit so yes their defense while they're replacing all their linebackers and virtually all their dbs just like us the talent pool is is significantly higher um maybe not higher than it would have been a few years ago. The difference is because we do have a four-star in Dylan Rivers and a, a four- and five-star in, in Devin Hunter that are going to be playing two of our linebacker spots. So there is a discrepancy, don't get me wrong, but it's not as big as it could have been a couple years ago. Uh, so I see us being able to compete in this game. Overall, FSU is probably a fringe top 25 team by year's end. They have a really tough schedule. Not only do they face us in week one, they have to go to Louisville, to Miami, Clemson, of course, at NC State, at Notre Dame, BC is going to be a tough team, and Florida. So that that's just that's a brutal run of, of games, and they could lose every single one of those. They yeah. won't, but they could. Yeah, I would say that I think it's interesting, and as I ran, finished off the first six of these games, and we'll come back to this at the end, I think looking at this and everything that we just said, it's interesting to compare this against Notre Dame. And if you think about what Notre Dame's doing, there's two position groups that I think differentiate those, but there's not that much different in terms of what was lost. And, you know, in fact, I think Florida State's returning some athletes that are actually even better than Notre Dame, but people are much higher on Notre Dame than they are on Florida State. 
And when we get down there, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. We compare those because they are the two, uh, I guess, p- two most prominent and toughest opponents that we're going to face. And, and I kept reminiscing between the two of them in the first six games. So it'll be a fun conversation. It'll be a question of how quickly Tiger can get that team to gel. And if they do, they're going to have a fantastic season because they do have the talent. I just don't think it can all come together with such a young defense in particular um, that quickly. And I think they're going to struggle uh, to to be to beat Clemson for sure. Notre Dame, Florida State, that's going to be a heck of a game. And we're even going to, you know, have a shot against them. And I guess at this point we should talk about just briefly what it's going to look like when we go down there. I think our team could be a little intimidated perhaps being in that environment in Tallahassee. I think we'll put up some points, particularly through the intermediate passing game against those green linebackers. Um, Josh has got to play well, without a doubt. We're not going to be able to rely heavily on the run game with how good their defensive line is. So he's going to have to be making those, you know, needle needling those throws in there in order to in order to beat this team we're going to have to capitalize on some of the blown assignments from the secondary as well so i it's going to require them to play poorly uh defensively for us to win we're we have to put up points because with how young our guys are and in, in in our defense you know they're going to be scoring some touchdowns in that running game yeah i'm not so worried about what they're going to do on offense i it Mostly because it's Bud Foster, and I know he's going to try and strengthen against the run in that game, which is probably where their strength is right off the bat, right? Especially with a new coach, especially with the speed they're going to be putting. Um, Our weakness is going to be in the backfield at DB and covering in secondary and making sure that we're covered and not letting stuff over the top. He's going to try and keep it in front and try and limit yards. Um, So, yeah, I think that... That could it could go both ways because on the other side, the defense on the Florida State side could cause a lot of problems for us early this early in with the amount of turnover that we have and how young the wide receiver core still remains and the fact that we still haven't figured out what our running back core is going to look like. Um, I think it could be look very unscrambled and kind of look a little amateur hour until we get our feet underneath us. So. We'll see. I mean, we got Josh Jackson coming back. Hopefully, they're you know getting um, you know on the same page in the off season. But yeah, that worries me a little bit in terms of what we're going to see because they have athletes on that side of the ball and athletes for a you know they may blow you know coverage a little bit, but they can make up for it with uh, with speed and agility, and that could be problematic in the first game of the year. I definitely think we can win the game. I just I just think that. Um... We, we're going to need weapons, and that was what was lacking against Clemson last year. All we had was freaking Cam Phillips, who could make a play. Can Hazleton make a play? Can Kuma make a play? Can Savoy make a play? If they can, we are going to have a chance. If they can't, it's going to look like Clemson, I feel like. Even though Clemson's a different animal, this is on the road against extremely talented players, and they have a... They have some guys in that secondary that are pretty nasty and have experience. So you're going to have to work those linebackers, those young linebackers who are all five stars. You're going to have to work them. Well, who are our weapons? I mean, well, and this will carry through the next five team previews. We've had three years of having weapons come back 
right? Like we knew what the weapon, it wasn't a lot, <laughs> but there were weapons there. Um, yeah. Nobody knows that answer right now and what they were exist. So um, I think that's an important concept. And that's not to say they, I actually think that's also why it's exciting. We're about to find out who they are, right? Who, how it's going to develop and what it's going to end up looking like. But it doesn't mean it's not going to be pain-free in the meantime while we kind of have to struggle through that, you know, um, you know, that learning curve of, you know, who's going to be out there and be able to put up yards or be able to make that catch when it comes down and not be and be the safety net for the QB, right? Do you want to do William Mary before a beer break real quick? Yeah, let's fire through this. All right. Bill and the bitch. Coming to town Saturday, September eighth, two p.m. Last year, William and Mary was two and nine. They went zero and eight in the CAA, and they were voted eleventh in their conference by the coaches and media directors. They're not a good FCS team. We don't need to talk about them too long, but we do need to mention Jimmy Laycock. He's been coaching the team since nineteen eighty. He's seventy years old. Uh, has had a good career at women mary you know they've they've been to the playoffs a few times and recently they've had back-to-back losing seasons and they're you know maybe they're dealing with a little bit of what we dealt with with beamer uh you know coaches get old and the teams generally tend to suffer unless you uh coach kansas state (laughs) yeah i think that's about right and i can't believe kansas state has still got him um I think the general feedback is their defense is out ahead of their offense uh, in terms of talent. Their offense is really, really bad. Uh, and it's last year, I think it was the least productive. One of the stats had it as least productive since 1980. Um, they have a QB, QB battle that's not good. And it's between a couple of sophomores. Their wide receivers... Um, you know, even their most productive one was injured last year, broke his wrist against UVA, which that's actually means you're real soft. Um, and you know, they, they don't have much there running back. It's a bunch of very green players there as well. I don't think their offense could be much worse than it was last year because it was absolutely abysmal, but it's not going to be good. And their defense is just a little bit out ahead of them. They, we have no business yeah. of losing this game. No. They have a quality player at each level of their defense. And like you said, it's better than the offense, but not much. Ultimately, we should score more than 30, and we should give up seven or less in a home game against an FCS team. I know our defense is very young, uh, as we've harped on, but I still think with how bad this offense is, you shouldn't give up more than seven at the most. 10 points um and you should beat them by three touchdowns really like that's what should happen in this game should get guys reps um backups reps backups might be starters the next game with this team you know you never know um i don't know what else would you want to see in this game no i think this game is actually a litmus test not the florida state game because florida state game is the first game of the year listen Florida State has a ton of talent and athletic talent. They're recruiting at a very high level. It's a different type of offense, and it may end up showing up on the field in a very good way. This is, if this game is, if they score more than 10 points, then get ready for the next 10 games to to be challenging. 
is how it. We need to hold them to a low amount of points to help our points per game average on defense this year, <laughs> because we were a great scoring defense last year. I think we gave up like 15 points a game or something. Um, if we keep it, if Bud can somehow get this team to hold teams to 25 points per game or less, like he's doing God's work. Like that's, that would be amazing. Yeah. And so if you're thinking about it, that means you got to keep William and Mary to like seven. Yeah. And I don't think it's much about that way. It's almost generating confidence for the, the young talent that's coming up. Um, I think of more of just like confidence building than anything else is if you can yeah. keep them to 10 or less, you feel confident going in the next game, next game, if you For give sure. up points against William and Mary. That's a problem. But if, if hell, if we get 25 points or less this season, then, you know, I'm, I'm going to etch something out of marble for, uh, for <laughs> Bud Foster because that's an impossibility in my mind. <laughs> they should make heavy use of the red shirt rule in this game. The new red shirt rule allows uh, players to play four games before uh, you can have to pull the red shirt. So, and I don't think they have to be consecutive. They can be at like any point in the season. So if you have depth issues late, you can use freshmen or sophomores, I guess, whoever you're intending on red shirting can play up to four games. It's, I think it's great for the players. It's great for the teams uh, to see what you have in a player. Uh, and, I think this game, you're going to see a lot of those guys who might play one, two, three games. You're going to see them play in this game just to to see how they act on a football field in front of fans because if they play well, you might be using them throughout the rest of the year. If they don't, then you're like, okay, that guy needs a redshirt. Agree. All right, let's move on. Let's take a beer break before we do the final four games of this episode. Robbie, what are you drinking? So I put this out on Twitter. I am having the Fear Movie Lions double IPA from Stone. I don't think Stone needs to be introduced. Uh, this is a 8.5 unfiltered double IPA. The unique part of this beer, uh, one, it tastes pretty good. If you don't like kind of a dank you know, double IPA, then you're not going to like it very much. But is the price point that I haven't figured out, and I actually tweeted this out, it's price like a normal six pack of craft beer, but they're tall boys. Six of them, not the four pack that you normally oh, get. Nice. So I think it's like 13, 14 bucks or something like that for um, an eight and a half of 16 fluid ounces, six beers. So doing the math, doing the math there. That's a lot of alcohol. <laughs> well, it's well, no, it's just the good. And I can't tell. I, 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 what I keep telling the people is I think that they might be just trying to get it popular and then they might jack up the price or they might lower the amount of, uh, alcohol they're giving out. I don't know, but in any case, it's good. And if you're looking for a, uh, a budget deal, this is it. I like it. I'm drinking dogfish head dragons and yum yums. Yes. That is the name of the beer. Uh, it's been out for a couple months now. I've seen it in a few restaurants, and uh, we picked some up down the beach. It's a pale ale brew with dragon fruit and yum berry. That's why there's the weird name. It's also got passion fruit, pear, and black carrot juices. It's a really weird beer. It's like pink and clear. It's, I've never really seen anything like it. It kind of looks like rosé in the glass, and it even has like a whiny-ish taste, I guess, because of all the weird fruit that's in it. 
not a huge fan. Dogfish, I love their their mainstays, their 60-minute, 90-minute. Uh, some of their other wintertime stuff is great. But the newer things they're putting out, like I've so rarely liked any of them. I don't know if that's the way you feel. I severely dislike Dogfish Head. Oh. Yeah, I don't think, I think they were good back in the, in the same way that uh, Boston Beer Company used to be good, but things evolved from it. Boston Beer Company set the stage for craft beer to become something bigger. Um, uh, them and Red Hook were really the two kind of founding founding uh, entrepreneurs of... Sierra um, Nevada, yeah. yeah. There, there's only, you, we know all the ones that have been around. Yeah, and uh, you got to evolve over time, and I feel like they never really evolved that well because they had such a good following that people would just show up at the store and they'd be like, oh, yeah, there's 60 minutes. Let's just grab it. Um, no, never read fan. I, I mean, I like drinking the 120 because I pretty much fall over backwards <laughs> after about like three sips. Uh, in the 90 minute, you can have like half a beer at a restaurant and you're like passed out in the car or something like that. But other than that, the flavors have never been that unique to me. Um, I think Stone has always been well out ahead. Uh, Ballast Point I would agree with went that. out ahead, well out ahead of like coming up with unique flavors to keep people interested in their beer and, um, They've rested on their laurels a little bit. And the new stuff they've come out with is is actually, it's complete dog shit. So not good at all. <laughs> dog shithead? <laughs> yeah, dog shithead. And that's my opinion. Uh, I but. don't know if I'd go dog shit. There's some of the, like, beer for breakfast they had one. It was like a scrapple beer. I thought that was okay. It was like a porter. Um, but I, yeah. Lately, all this kind of funky stuff they're doing, I'm not a huge fan uh, I know uh, my girlfriend likes the sea quench, and I think that's kind of a, you know, a sour ale type situation. Uh, but yeah, not not a huge fan of the newer stuff Dogfish has been doing. But I'm from Delaware, so I keep buying it. I don't know. They're gonna come after us as a podcast. Well, I know, right? Get, we'll, we're gonna lose all our sponsors again. Uh, wait, oh, already done. <laughs> all right, let's move on to ECU. This is Saturday, September fifteenth. It's at 12.20 p.m. I believe, actually, I don't know what channel this is on. Last year it was on the CBS Sports Network. I'm not sure this year what it's going to be on. That might be the same thing. But ECU was not good again last year. They went 3-9, and 2-6 and six in conference, and 123rd in the S&P Plus rankings. Coming into this year, Athlon has them at 122. So right on the money there from last year. Phil Steele, 116th in his power poll and projected S&P Plus, 125. Again, a 3-9 and nine record is what Bill Connolly's predicting. Picked last in their division by Athlon. The experience rank is 125th. They are last, dead last, in FBS in percent of Letterman returning. It is not good in Greenville. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I want to spend a whole lot of time here. Um, <laughs> and that's not so much because actually ECU was on a run. They were actually like really improving. Like things were going well. We talked about it last year. So I don't want to like rehash what we already talked about on the podcast. The getting rid of Ruffin McNeil was the stupidest fucking thing that I can remember in college football. Like he was doing well. He was building a program. It was. It, and then they got rid of him, brought in Scotty Montgomery, 
And the headline from Big Bill Colony was Scotty Montgomery needs an absolute miracle or a miracle to save his job. So that's how ECU season is probably going to go. Um, it's yeah. it it was it's frustrating because I know we all hate ECU because we have to play him well, every year, but. From a coaching perspective, it was a stupid decision. It was dumb. It didn't work out. And now they are an absolute train wreck uh, from almost every way that you can look at it. If you want to look at offense, uh, Minshew's gone. Thomas Sirk, who was around for 400 years, is gone finally. Uh, they have like a sophomore in Herring who might have a strong arm. The wide receiver, they have one, which is Trevor Brown. I think he's actually probably one of the, if he was on any other team, top wide receivers that would probably be like top yeah. 10 in the country if he was on another team. So it depends on how it goes this year. The rest of their their team is on the wide receivers a disaster. And then running back is is not great um, yeah. is how I'd characterize it. They're bringing back how at running back 4.36 yards per carry. Um Got another couple guys there. Trevon Brown is really the playmaker of this offense. Maybe the tight end will be a threat. Watley, their offensive line only returns two starters. Um, they'll be okay, but by no means good up front. So this is could be a, a you know a feeding frenzy for our defensive line and a great way for our linebackers to focus on the running backs and force this what this quarterback Reed Herring to throw. Uh, he's got virtually no experience. He's thrown one pass. It did go for a touchdown, but he's thrown one pass for one completion in his career. Uh, I'll say this about their offense. There is hope in this hometown QB that just committed to them last year. His name is Holton at Holton Athers. It's a H L E R S Allers. He was a high end three star. He was their top recruit in last year's recruiting class. So he's a true freshman. 6'3", 235, you know, like a little bit of Tebow-esque size there. Uh, he's a dual threat, so he will he can, you know, run those inverted veers. Um, I would not be surprised at all if that kid is playing out of necessity, you know, at some point early in the season. I don't wish it on him because he's a true freshman, but like I said, he was their best recruit, maybe one of their best recruits in the last few years, and he's from Greenville. He's not leaving when Scotty Montgomery inevitably gets gets fired. He's someone we're going to have to be dealing with down the road for sure. Yeah. I mean, either him or Scotty can also sub in for QB at this point because <laughs> that's how much of a train wreck this whole stupid decision is that we've been mocking. Uh, let's talk about the defense. Uh, sure. This is one of the worst defenses that exists in all of uh, the 130 teams that are in college football. Uh, it might get better this year, I'm hoping. So you and I joked well, around today. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to get better. I think it will. But, um, uh, you know, Bill Colony does his, like, his bullseye of, like, all the different efficiency, everything. And if it has, like, a big spread, I remember Michigan's defense, I think it was two years ago, was, like, almost a full circle, meaning that you are efficient in almost every single aspect of def- of, of defense. So being farther out is like the best part of this. And if you have to go look at uh, the S&P Plus and his 130 teams, I would suggest you do so. Uh, ECU was a bullseye, like literally a like a pinpoint on the center of 
uh, humanity. Yeah. It was a singularity. Practically based. last in every single category. Yeah, it was a black hole singularity, like in the center <laughs> of all defensive stats that you could be tracking, or at least that he tracks. Um, they lost by Memphis. The 57 points, I think, was a little bit um, outrageous that they lost by at the end of the season. So that that didn't go off so well. So it's not like they're on the up and up. I didn't. I just stopped writing stuff down because I know. Um, their total defense last year was 130, and they had the second fewest sacks. Horrible against the rush. Horrible against the pass. It it was just so bad. Their only hope is the new defensive coordinator they brought in, David Blackwell. He came from Jacksonville State FCS team, but that team was excellent on D and. From everything I read, like getting Blackwell to even come to ECU was like a major coup for them. Well, JSU almost took down what was that game that they almost won? They almost beat like Ole Miss or something like that. I think it was Auburn a couple years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Someone big. He's a stud on defense, like ridiculously. So, that's their only hope. ECU, if they've ever had one thing, it's athletes. Uh, If they can find some guys to come in there and, you know, want to play defense and want to tackle and chase guys down. This guy can hopefully get them the schemes to do it. Um, you know, they're so bad. They can't get worse, literally can't get worse because they were last. So they've got that going for them. Uh, <laughs> I think we should win this game by three touchdowns again. I don't know if it'll be the 64 to 17 that it was last year. It, I think the two year totals like 118 to 34. So, um, we've just kicked the crap out of them the last two years, and it's felt so, so good after losing to them for two years in a row. So I uh, I hope that happens again. Like I was saying, Scotty Montgomery, he might not make it out of the season with his job. They play UNC. They come to Blacksburg. They have to play at USF. ODU, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is a decent team. And you know USF is going to smoke them by like 150 yeah. points. Houston, UCF. Memphis at Tulane, like that is that is rough for what is a crappy, crappy team. So um, they might struggle with North Carolina A and T. They they really might. So we'll just see. Uh, let's score forty plus on them and give up ten or less this year. How about that? I do. I also feel bad for them because they made the stupidest coaching decision that I think has happened in the last couple of years. So it was, it was bad. It was bad. They actually brought back the special teams guy who uh, was under McNeil, I believe. He's their new special teams coach. They have five new coaches on ECU. All right, let's move on to ODU. Saturday, September 22nd, 3.30 p.m. in Norfolk. Yes, we are going to ODU to play a football game. Uh, It's hard to believe considering they weren't D1 not too long ago. Uh, they were five and seven last year, three and five in conference, 115th in the S and P. We both thought they'd be a lot better when we did our summer preview of old dominion last year. Uh, but injuries got to them. They ended up starting a freshman QB who was 17 years old in lane stadium last year. And it, it took them a little while to get their feet under them. Phil Steele has their experience rank at 17th. So they're bringing back, Quite a few guys. It's 22nd nationally on offensive line starts, so they should be able to protect that now sophomore quarterback pretty well. Uh, last year's game was 38 nothing, 
Now, I don't know if the margin was that large or should have been larger. Like parts of that game were fluky for our offense. If you remember the the batted pass that was caught by Steven Peoples for a touchdown. But I also thought that we completely dominated the game and could have won by more. So 38 is probably about right. Um, and the zero was probably about right as well. I think they missed a field goal at one point. Look ahead game. You come, you go all come off of William and Mary. Then you go to East Carolina then you have an ODU on the road, and you have Notre Dame coming up. Uh, I don't know. It could be look ahead. Well, and- we ha- yeah, but there's Duke before Notre Dame, so you got a conference game after ODU. But yeah, no matter how you want to slice it, you've got a look ahead potential. Yeah, and you've kind of been lulled to sleep by your last two opponents. So I get what you're saying. And you're playing down at ODU. We're playing at ODU, by the way. <laughs> just in case anybody hasn't, we'll just remind everybody again. Um, I think. You know, this team, you brought it up first in my mind. The first person that I saw say they were a little bit worried about ODU was you. And when I started looking at the team, I'm not I'm not worried about it, but it makes me cautious like to respect the team in terms of what they're bringing back. Uh, Stephen Williams was 17 years old when he came in and, and played. Needless to say, there should be a lot of improvement in the past game for somebody like that. Um, and hopefully it, you know, his completion percentage picked up throughout the year. So, you know, he started to get more comfortable, uh, at wide receiver for their five wide receiver targets come back. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a few names to watch there and running back, they lose, I think what was their leading, uh, rusher, but they have, um, you know, they have a little bit of talent coming back. So the, the yeah, offense, they it, lost, um, it was Lowry in early in the year. Right. right. And then. Jeremy Cox. He's now, and he had to leave as a senior, but Jeremy Cox is back. Mm-hmm. He was really good two years ago, pretty good last year. Uh, they had their top two wide receivers back in Harper and Fulgham. And uh, Jonathan Dunhart was another guy that got hurt early in the year last year. I don't think he played against Tech. Um, between those three guys, they've got 1,000 yards, 76 receptions coming back. And uh, more or less three starters. So it's some nice talent that Williams has to work with this year. It's a question of whether he can approve upon that six TD, 11 interception stuff that he did last year. He didn't have an interception in his last four games and he had four total TDs. So you're right. He did improve, but he was by no means good. Yeah. Well, he was also 17. You remember what you were doing when you were 17? Yeah, yeah. I was still in high school. (laughs) I wasn't in Lane Stadium. (laughs) So um, I think, and I'll I'll jump into the defense here in a second, but I think think their strengths match our strengths in some respects. And we'll get to an example here in a second where the opposite is true and vice versa. Our weaknesses match their weaknesses, which I think is beneficial for Virginia Tech talent in taking over this game. So their... You know, their defense is the strong point, I think, of what they're putting out on the field. There's a lot of consistency. Um, they, you know, one of the top lines they're thinking in the Conference USA, granted, it's Conference USA, but there's a lot of talent that's coming back on the D line. They have five senior linemen, which is, I don't even know how that ends up happening on the, the D line. <laughs> Seven of total have started before. Linebackers are more experienced. Um, they have a couple of good players that I think would stick out. And then defensive backs, they had a bunch of kind of snake bit, 
you know, injuries that happened last year that right. upset their team. So overall, their defense, I would say, is um, a lot stronger than their offense. The good news is that um, I think that e- equally it's as true is that our defense is, is inexperienced against their offense as their defense, you know, is against our against our offense. So I think it actually will marry I up. I get what you're saying. Yeah. I just want to stress how good this defensive line is. Now, it, they said it might be the best in the conference, but it's probably a top 30 line in the country, maybe a top 20 line. They were 27th in sacks last year per game. They bring back 80% of those sacks. Uh, the defensive end, Exemes, I think, 14 tackles for loss. That's ex- extremely good production for a defensive end. Um, and they have like you were talking about so many seniors in the two deep of their defensive line and as many as six experienced defensive tackles could rotate in, including starter miles Fox. So it's, it's kind of insane how much depth they have up front on defense. Uh, They're going to really be struggling next year, I suppose, but for this game going into that environment for us, you know, their defense is going to come out fired up and they're going to be rotating guys, fresh guys in throughout the game. So you're going to have to expose them in the back. Uh, Josh is going to have to be able to throw the ball down the field a bit because their top two tacklers on the team, both linebackers are both back. So you're going to have to expose their corners because I think they also have their both of their safeties back and their nickelback. So it's there's a lot of talent coming back on this defensive side of the ball. As much as Stephen Williams wasn't good, this team's going to go as far as he takes them. The, the defense is good enough that if he's anywhere near as good, they're going to win a lot of games and go to a bowl. Uh, unfortunately, they're in a division with Lane Kiffin and FAU, Marshall, which has always been a very good Conference USA team, and uh, they got Middle Tennessee State in there too, which is a sneaky team. So they were picked fourth uh, by Phil Steele in their division, they could easily finish second or first. Uh, probably not first with how much talent FAU has, but they're going to compete, and they're going to compete with us. I do think that as the game wears on, we'll take over, but you don't want to let these guys hang around. Well, especially when they have depth at that position, and I wouldn't characterize our offensive line as having depth, right? Like, yeah, I think yeah. we have strength up front, and guess the the weight advantage, the strength advantage, you know, the talent advantage should help for a while, but our guys are going to wear down if they're rotating, you know, that many people through their defensive line. Um, and with that, then the next week you have Duke and then the week after that you have Notre Dame. I mean, it's not a good spot to have that good of a line coming up against our team. So it's, it's, unfortunate in the way that it's scheduled because it's going to wear and tear those those guys down because they're just going to be throwing bodies in there i mean I, I would imagine they're rotating pretty significantly yeah there is a talent discrepancy no doubt about it if you look at like when bill Connolly puts out his previews he always puts like the two and five year recruiting ranks and, the, and like how they're adding up and they're in the hundreds like they are not Super talented, but these guys have had time to develop. There are so many seniors on both sides of the ball. Uh, you know, three senior wideouts, seven senior defensive linemen. Like it, it's it's a uh, it's an experienced team, and that could be an advantage. I don't think we'll lose, but I'll be happy with with any win 
uh, especially anything in double digits, I would be very happy with. I agree. To Duke, our first ACC uh, Coastal game of the season. It's Saturday, September 29th. Duke has given us problems for years now, uh, ever since Cutcliffe got them up and running. Last year, Duke was 7-6, and 3-5 and five in the ACC, and 65th in the S&P+. Athlon has them at 65th coming into this year. Phil Steele, on the other hand, has them far higher. He has them 29th in his power poll and 37th in his preseason rankings. You have to understand the power poll is how good he thinks the team is relative to anyone else, and the ranking is how he thinks that team will actually finish the season based on their schedule. So 29th in the power poll is saying something for Duke. He thinks they're a top 30 team. The projected S&P is 40th and a 6-6 six and six season from Bill Connolly. So this, again, that goes back to that coin flip game thing. Duke could beat UNC and Pitt and us, and all of a sudden, you know, they're a top 25 team. If they lose all three of those games, they're 65, like Athlon says. So it's going to be an interesting season for for them. And unfortunately, we have to go to Durham in on Saturday, September 29th. So it's it's a uh, it's a dangerous game, especially the week before Notre Dame. Yeah, I guess it all starts with Daniel Jones, who we've been talking about for a few years now. And, um, uh, you know, he is, I think he's one of the more talented QBs in terms of production, not necessarily talent, but production in the ACC, um, in an ability to find ways to make stuff happening on the ground, which he's done or through the air. And, you know, he did have a lot of turnovers, but he puts up good numbers. He took a step back last year though. I think we'd both agree with Mm -hmm. that. His QBR dropped 10 points. His rating dropped 14 points. His completion percentage went from 63 to 57. TD ratio down. He ran almost exactly the same. 1,000 yards rushing over the past two years. Uh, 14 rushing TDs over the past two years. Seven and seven. So he he's an effective runner still. He's got great size at 6'5", 220. And... Maybe a little bit of that beginner's luck in 2016 when he was really good and went into South Bend and beat Notre Dame. And we had likened it to Logan Thomas last year on our podcast. We talked about how, you know, he came in and, and kind of lit it up and we're like, oh yeah, this is this is the future of this program. And it just never got any better. And in fact, it got worse. So will Daniel Jones be 2016 Daniel Jones or will he be 2017? It, we're, we're going to have to see. I, I think he was dealing with a bit of an injury last year. It's kind of something I've read after the fact. I don't I don't really know. He did play better down the stretch. Uh, Duke had a weird year. They won four games, they lost six games, and then they won their last three games, including the Bull. So maybe he got healed up and started playing better. I'm not really sure, but he is what's going to make this thing go. He's got good receiving options and, and ramming and Taylor and Lloyd, all guys that have been around. Uh, they Seven don't necessarily eight coming back this year. Yeah. So if it's, if, if, if he doesn't pass well, it's not on the wide receiving core. He's got no. all experience coming back basically. Except for one um, person. And he's got Daniel Helm back at tight end and Coppenhaver who had three TDs also at tight end. So plenty of guys to catch the football for, for Daniel Jones. The offensive line will be a, 
a bit of a black eye, I think. There's just two starters back. Their center and both of their tackles are gone. Uh, it's a weakness for sure. So that could hold them back, which I'm which I'm happy about because otherwise the offense with Britton Brown and running back, there's a lot of guys who can move the football in, in this team. And then when you look at their defense and the talent that's coming back there, I am nervous about this game. I was I was kind of a little bit nervous about ODU. This game is like a legit loss possibility on the road in the ACC. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it earlier. I agree with you totally on the offense. It's going to come down to the QB. I think that he's got the options around him, but on the defense, that's going to come back. I don't know if we have the offensive talent to really keep up with this. They return 95% of the production from last year. Um, that's up there. The defensive line is really good. Their linebackers are ridiculous. I think um, I think I said it was number six best linebacking six best linebacking core. Phil Steele has them in the country. That's not in the ACC. That's in the country. Um, there are nasty Joe Giles Harris, first team All ACC. He's back. Ben Humphreys, who we talked about, I also talked about last year. Both of these p- players we previewed last year. They had super productive years, and now they're back again. Joe Giles Harris had 125 tackles last year. That's just ridiculous production. 16 of those were tackles for loss. Four and a half sacks, four pass breakups, an interception, a forced fumble. He does it all. He is a stud, one of the best linebackers in the country. Uh, And Humphreys isn't too bad himself. They lost a lot in the DBs, but Gilbert is basically a shutdown corner. He had 14 pass breakups last year, which I think is the same amount as Greg Stroman had. He had six interceptions and three tackles for loss. They have two junior safeties who have a lot of experience. Safety Jeremy McDuffie, he hurt his knee in November. We're not sure when he'll come back, but he was really good too. It's it's an aggressive D, and they should reduce their mistakes this year and get even better because last year they had such a young team such a young defense I thought they were going to suck and they didn't suck at all they were actually a really good defense last year um, and the offense was just so poor they 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 couldn't help them out and this year almost all of those guys are back they get seven of eight of their defensive linemen back it's going to be a problem Uh, you're right I don't know if our offense is going to be able to to score enough to um to outpace Jones and those weapons. I, I really don't. This this is one of those ones everyone's like, ah, oh, it's Duke. And like because they were kind of bad uh last year, they kind of people kind of forgot about them a little bit, but they are recruiting well and a lot of that talent is on the defense. And it's kind of ridiculous how well it's working out for them. Uh, in fact, their defense was so surprisingly good last year that Oklahoma State stole their defensive coordinator. Um, I think they promoted from within, but regardless, that's how good they were on D. They they really were um, the the strength of the team. Yeah, and uh, and their defense is um, and forget the disassociate the offense from the defense and the teams. Their defense is a lot of what I think Virginia Tech can look like next year. Like what was last year to this year is a lot what I think that our team can look like this year because it's extremely reminiscent. From the positions to it's the true. like, and so, yeah, it's not fun to look at in terms of an opponent. It is nice to look at if you're thinking about like what can happen for Virginia Tech moving forward. Um, the youth of what they developed over the last year 
and the development is actually pretty impressive. They are going to be victims of a tough schedule. So making a bowl again for them is going to be tough. I do think they'll get to six, seven, or eight wins. Uh, again, they could they could win all the coin flip games or they could lose them all. Who knows? But they got Northwestern on the road, Baylor on the road, Virginia Tech at home, Miami on the road, and Clemson on the road. That, that's that's not too not too not too friendly considering they also have to play UNC and Pitt and UVA and teams that you know always play them tough. Georgia Tech. So it, it, it's they're getting us early. I wish we could play this team a little bit later. I, I really do. Uh, and not the week before Notre Dame, but that's the way it goes. I'm kind of thinking this is going to be a loss, man. Um. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to preview our win loss. That's fine. I, I, I that's think fine. there's going to be more losses than anybody anticipated this year, and um, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. How's that? That sounds good. Let's do one more beer break before we move on to Notre Dame. So, Pete, what are you drinking over there? I'm having the Two Roads Miles to Go Unfiltered Pale Lager. It's a lot to say, but it's uh, particularly focused on the fact that it's an unfiltered pale lager. Uh, they brew it colder and slower and leave it unfiltered for a softer body and a toasty malt. I didn't come up with that. I just read it off the bottle. <laughs> but I will say that it is, it is much more malty than i would consider most pale ales or pale lagers in this in this case uh it's a little bit sweeter and it does have like a soft finish to it miles to go two roads they're from stratford connecticut i like a lot of their beers uh they have the road jam uh some good ipas I've always been pretty pleased with what I get from them. I think there's a, I have a holiday beer still in my fridge. I almost did a Christmas in July since it's July 25th. I almost did my Mad Elf and this, that two roads holiday beer, but I was like, nah, I'll just do summertime stuff. But uh, this is pretty good. What are you having? Uh, I'm having the Founders Sumatra Mountain. It's a brown, imperial brown ale brewed with Sumatra coffee. So I went with oh. a uh, Imperial Coffee uh, Brown Ale, not a stout, a brown ale. And um, it's Founders. So Founders, as if anybody likes kind of uh, the stouts or the brown ale stuff, they've been doing a lot of this kind of really heavy, um, you know, Imperial dark stout, uh, Imperial stuff, you know, Barrel-aged. CBS. Yeah, the, everything. Uh, well, they've been KBS. doing that for a while, but they've been trying to yeah. diversify, and this is the first time I saw this one. And I got to tell you, I love it. It tastes delicious. It's, um, But they're all starting, and it's probably because I haven't drank enough of them. They're all starting to taste the same, um, just with the alcohol content varying between them because some of them are like 12%, some of them are down to 8%. Um, but they're all, and that's probably because I don't drink enough like dark, dark ales and stouts and things like that to differentiate between a bunch of the founders. But I will say they're all delicious. So I yeah. can't tell you which one I like more than the other, uh, other than some of them have a little bit more alcohol punch to them. And I would have to drink them one after another rather than us doing it one on the podcast. But they're all delicious. And this one is no different. So founders, once again, did it well. 
Yeah, and this one I could put in a coffee pot, and maybe I'll have it tomorrow morning. So you know, it'd be uh, it'd be perfect. The the Sumatra coffee would be amazing. So there you go. I like it. All right, the Fighting Irish Saturday, October sixth, on our home turf. Last year they were pretty good. They bounced back from that four and eight season that people were memeing and joking about endlessly, and they were ten and three, finished thirteenth in the S and P and number 11 in the AP poll. Athlon has them at 15 going into this year. A 9-3 record is the prediction there. Phil Steele has them at 8th, and the projected S&P has them at 7th. So, again, a little bit of a discrepancy between Athlon and the more, uh, how should I say, nerdy predictions from Steele and Bill Connolly. Uh, Phil Steele experience rank is 51st. And they're 45th in percent tackles returning. Uh, that was their best category. So kind of right down the middle of FBS in terms of what they're bringing back in experience. But uh, depending on which production metrics you want to look like, they're bringing back quite a bit. Yeah, and Phil also has them as their his number one surprise team, which I think is important because he always puts out okay. his surprise teams. And his number one surprise team is Notre Dame, which effectively takes into account a lot of those things as well as you know what people are looking at and what he thinks they're going to produce on the year so um and his top i will say over the past years i I buy his magazine every year his top one through five surprise teams he may miss one sometimes he misses two usually they have a pretty good year it doesn't mean that they're going to the national championship it just means that they're doing better than maybe most people are 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 thinking about. So yeah, to your to your point, um, it, it depends on how big of a nerd you want to get about all these things. <laughs> Despite not being ranked to start last year, Notre Dame ended up being favored in all but their bowl game. They were favored in every single game, even Georgia, uh, Stanford, which they ended up losing both of those, but literally favored in every game. They only lost to three good teams in Georgia, Miami, and Stanford, and. Clearly, the Miami game stood out to everyone because Miami just was so hot at that time and opened up a freaking can of whoop ass on them. But this Notre Dame team was really good, and they bring back the quarterback, which is very important, and they bring back a ton of production on D. Now, what's going to hold them back this year is going to be their schedule. Uh, it's the 16th toughest schedule, according to Phil Steele. They play Michigan right off the bat, which is is going to be really fun to watch. And I'm curious to see how that one shakes out. And they also have to go to Wake, Stanford, come to Blacksburg. They play FSU at home, and they have to go to USC. They also have Vandy, Pitt, Northwestern, Syracuse, and Navy on the schedule. It just It's always so tough for Notre Dame with, with all the Power 5 teams they have to play. But I do think their defense will carry them this year. What do you think about their quarterback situation? Well, I wanted to start off with how much I'm crying because they don't have to be independent. They choose to be independent. So, yeah, (laughs) I don't really give a shit about what their schedule looks like because it could be a lot easier if they wanted to actually make it. But, yeah, yeah, here's the woe is me. Yeah, I'll take them in the Coastal Division. Yeah, the the woe is me. Any way to get them in the ACC. The woe is me, Notre Dame. Uh, commentary is about as annoying as anything in college football. Um, so no, we don't give a shit that you have a tough schedule because you chose to be independent. So good luck. Um, so uh, <laughs> at QB, uh, Brandon Woodbush, I think is going to dictate 
uh, in my mind, and not, I don't want to lead out too far ahead, he's going to dictate how far this team goes um, in, in my mind. Uh, and there's a little bit of some of that coming from running back, but I think it's more so dictated by what he did. He was terrible last year. Um, he got better a little bit towards the end of the year, but his completion percentage, I think, was like almost under 50% yeah. or 49%. He was a bad passer. But yep. not necessarily a bad QB. Yeah, right. He would be great for Georgia Tech. I mean, he would be wonderful <laughs> in the triple option. So if if that's what if that's what we constitute a great quarterback, then I think he's done the wrong team. He can go play for Navy, which actually they'll be playing against this year. So we'll see if they just flip sides. <laughs> so um, I, I he got benched during the Citrus Bowl, uh, the last game of the year. Uh, they sat him down. So. Uh, I get it, and I think that Josh Adams opened up a lot of avenues for him to be a good rusher in this, and Josh Adams was Definitely. an elite running back uh, for a, some of that season. And, and In fact, and I think it was um, Connolly that said that like through October, people thought that he had a chance at the Heisman. Uh, he was a terrific running back. Production yards were ridiculous per carry, and I think he opened up a lot for Wimbush if they're just looking for running quarterback, if they're then you know they may have it. Uh, it. But if they're trying to do more this year, which a lot of people think that they have a lot of upside, I think he's going to have to open up more in the passing game um, than he did last year, and he's going to have to not have the protection that he did with having Equanimous St. Brown, who was awesome. That guy is fantastic, and not having Josh Adams as being an elite running back. There's a tons of talent at Notre Dame, but those are the two losses that I think could impact him as a quarterback. And I came away looking at this offense just completely unimpressed, really. For for what talent and they and you know every all the things that come with Notre Dame, um I'm not sure who the star is on this offense. Josh Adams and those offensive linemen were absolutely the star of last year. They had two offensive linemen taken in the top 10 of the NFL draft. And even though they're replacing them with essentially four starters due to platooning, they still won't be as good. There's just no way that offensive line can be as good. And no running back that's on this roster is as good as Josh Adams. So you're right. That opened up a lot of things for Wimbush who had 803 yards rushing and, and 14 TDs. Like 14 rushing TDs. He had 30 total touchdowns. It's crazy production, but will all those holes be open if people know he's the number one rushing threat? It should also be noted that Dexter Williams, the senior running back who's you know in line to replace Adams, is suspended for the first four games. Now, he'll be back by the time Tech plays, and I guess back one week earlier to play Stanford, but... Uh, that's going to hurt them, and that that's going to hurt them for the Michigan game. So we'll see, uh, you know, how that affects Tony Jones Jr., the other sophomore running back. Uh, he had three TDs, and he got better as the year went on with a five five point three yards per carry average that uh, was definitely higher as the year ended. I like some of the size they have at wide receiver, like I like our own wide receivers, but. They have only shown flashes as uh, Chase Claypool and Miles Boykin. They're both enormous, but uh, they have been inconsistent. They also have Young, and I think it's Fink, uh, who was a walk-on at one point. 
to be next in line at, you know, filling in the wide receiver spots. But again, I just, I'm not sure there's anyone that's standing out here. And this offense could be very pedestrian without that running game from last year. Well, and if there's any, and I think, uh, yeah, there's a couple people that chimed in on, if there's any injuries at that running game, then you're, you're completely screwed. Um, yeah. And St. Brown, and, and to be honest, nobody thought of him as a breakout. And I think we talked about this a little bit last year before he went, was he kind of came out of nowhere. And there is no doubt that Notre Dame recruits elite high-end talent and that yep. people can come out of nowhere. But I there's nothing here in terms of their players that I'm like, this guy's going to be a breakout star this year. Uh, at all. Um, and yeah. th- there will be somebody, or there might be two people, but to replace what, one, two, three, four, four elite players in in this year. Well, their tight end got drafted too. And the, in the t- tight end. <laughs> so it's not like, hey, we just need one of you to step up. You need, and those yeah. two offensive linemen were nasty. I mean, those were guys nasty, were yeah. so good. I, I can't remember a time, and I think they brought it up during the draft, that two offensive linemen from the same school got drafted in the t- first 10 picks, that doesn't yeah. even make any sense. Like, that should never happen unless you're running, like, you know, Nebraska teams from, like, 19-whatever, 80. Um, <laughs> yeah, so- it's a credit to Notre Dame and their recruiting and their development that put those guys went in the top 10. I was – in Athlon, they always have um, – like the rising star to to just finish this point of like what their offenses look like and who's going to make plays for them, and their rising star was Cole Komet, who is a sophomore tight end. So I and I will say, Notre Dame they put tight ends in the NFL like like crazy. Kyle Rudolph. That's a, a position like Miami where they just develop it. So I'm not doubting that. Komet could be a potential rising star, but you don't typically think of your relying on your tight end again and again. We'll see. Let's talk about the defense. And this is a much more scary side of the football. The defensive coordinator, Mike Elko, who was actually from Wake Forest, he was one and done. He left for Texas A&M after last year. Uh, They had a very successful year. He kind of turned them around a bit. And now he leaves Chris Lee, the number one, returning defensive production according to bill Connolly, like he has so much stuff to work with now i think that ranking would have come out before nick williams decided or nick watkins decided to leave he transferred to houston i believe but nevertheless they are stacked at every level of this defense and it's funny i haven't thought of notre dame as like a defensive powerhouse in, in a long time. Well, and this could be one of the best defense they've had in a really, really long time. Well, 2012, first of all, Elko is an absolute stud. And when he went, he's now with Jimbo down right at uh, Texas A&M. Yep. Um, Elko was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he's well regarded as one of the best defensive lines. He goes up there with, you know, some of the best. Um you know, the 2012 Notre Dame You're right. back. The Manti Teo team. Yeah, when yeah. you go back there, but in the interim period, I t- totally agree with you. I never thought of them as a defensive team. I always thought of them, just like you said, op- offensive line production, tight end production, um, really speedy kind of uh, universal uh, wide receiver production. But now it seems like... Um, we don't know what we're going to get on the field. What we do know is that they're left with a lot of talent. 
And I think that's where we, all we can do because you have a new coach coming in. Elko, um, I think people had a lot of confidence in. At the D line, I think that they return. There's a lot of just returning starters, but they're returning starters from a for, for, former regime, if that makes sense, right? Like under like what Elko had done, six of eight on the defensive line, four of six on the linebacker core, and then everybody pretty much at defensive back uh, is... Yeah, they only lost the one transfer at cornerback and safety in, in Watkins, and that which is just nuts. That's that's pretty much like us on our D-line was just losing settle. Like everyone else we brought back. They are, they are stacked. Their starters at linebacker are top-notch in Coney and Drew Tranquil. Uh, they... Suffering an injury to one of those two guys would be probably like a, a bit of an issue for them. But Coney had 116 tackles last year, 12 and a half tackles for loss. Tranquil had 44 solo tackles playing that buck linebacker position. That's which it was more than 50% of his tackles, which is kind of a rarity, which means that kid can just tackle in space. The rover linebacker spot's gonna be a senior in Asmar Bilal. He didn't play as much, but he was in all 13 games. I think Tranquil technically played the rover last year. But uh, all the sophomores are backups. The starters are just excellent at linebacker. And Tillery is back on that defensive line. I feel like I've been hearing that name for a while. He was definitely on the team when we played them a few years ago. Uh, he had nine tackles for loss last last year as a, as a tackle, which, again, not a position that you're necessarily – really getting into the backfield and bringing people down. He did it, and he has four and a half sacks, which is pretty good production from that position. Um, their defensive ends are dangerous. I think they're ready to break through, and Kareem and Dalen Hayes, both of them had multiple tackles for loss last year. Quality backups across that line. I'm nervous about this one, man. I think it's the best thing we have going for us is that they're playing Stanford the week before. <laughs> I characterize I mean, it as they're losing a lot of their highest end talent, but they're backfilling it with a ton of depth is how I would characterize yeah. it. So their highest end talent that they had, probably four players that are huge and will be well-known by Notre Dame for a while, including the offensive lineman, including the wide receiver, and but then they're backfilling it with a ton of depth. And that's what's frightening to me. And as you know, depth can be, except at running back, I understand. Running back is the one area that they're not as deep. But otherwise, I think they have, they can actually be productive and they can handle a few kind of snake bites throughout the, the season early on. Yeah. One of the most ridiculous stats I saw for any of the guys on their defense was the cornerback, Julian Love, who I think may have even kind of getting beaten up when we were playing them a couple years ago. Uh, he's an absolute stud now, like a completely a shutdown corner, like all American caliber corner. He had 20 pass breakups last year. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen any of the previews we've done with that many three interceptions and 45 solo tackles from the cornerback position. Uh, it's it's pretty insane, and, and we already said that they're bringing back everyone else back there. So I don't know how Fuente's going to attack this team. I, I'm I'm very curious to see what he does that night uh, in Blacksburg. I assume it's going to be at night. Let's hope uh, 
that would be a lot of fun to play Notre Dame on, you know, the nationally televised ESPN night game. Uh, hopefully we're both playing well, you know, we'll, we'll see, but, uh, I I'm scared of this one, man. I know I said Duke might be a loss, but this one could definitely be a loss too in our own house. Uh, I think we're, I need to see something from our offense. There's a possibility to be three and three right here. I think we should be transparent with the fan bases. What with what's transpired. Yeah. You could lose to Florida state. You could lose to Notre Dame and, uh, to either, Probably ODU. It's another possibility, um, yeah. but it would probably be Duke if that was going to happen. And yeah, I think ODU is in the probably in the bag. So if you're going to be that, that would be a tough loss. But there's a lot of tough teams here, and I think if you read a lot of Bill Colony stuff, which is funny, he's making a joke of it, which is that means the conference is good. Like it doesn't mean it's great. The high end, it means it's just generally good, which I think is true because when I start to look at teams like Georgia Tech, when I start to look at Duke, when I start to look at teams that normally in a good year we would be all set with, this year is probably not going to be the same. I don't know if Notre Dame will finish top 10 just because of their schedule. They could easily lose four four games, you know, of – Stanford and Michigan and USC and Florida State and us. But uh, they definitely could, you know, win 10, 11 games. I mean, they're they're going to be really good, especially on defense. Maybe Boykin takes off at wide receiver. Uh, I'm really glad this is at home. It gives us a chance. If this was on the road, I, I just don't think there's any way we'd beat this team. I would take the under that night <laughs> when, it, when we were playing the Blacksburg because I think their offense could struggle a bit against our defense, knowing that they're going to be probably trying to run the ball with Wimbush against us. And I would expect our offense to struggle a bit. Hopefully we've developed a couple outside weapons by the time this game comes around. That's, that's, that's the hope. Yeah. I think the only last hope I have is that I'm excited Maybe most people aren't because they just want like W's in the bag. I'm excited to see what Bud Foster does this year. Like it, that is, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like a scheme junkie, or no, maybe I'd I, like. I think you're right. Like the way that he figures out how to put these players on the field and make them productive is ridiculously exciting. Because if you're looking for like a shutdown, like top ten defense this year, I'm sorry, like it's not, it's not happening. Like I, I like there's no chance. Like if we're a top 40 defense, he just created like, you know, wine from water type situation, given what has just happened and transpired. Um, but that makes it that much exciting to watch him do his art of like scheming defense. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch in the way that he kind of puts it on the field that, you know, maybe people just want W's. I kind of want to just watch that because I think it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to be a big test. The one thing that, that Bud does have going for him, and I and I said it earlier, is that we are a lot more talented at a lot of those positions than we've been in prior years. I, to to have a four star middle linebacker and a four star whip to step right in when we've had these type of departures wouldn't have been the case a few years ago. We had honestly very bad linebacker recruiting up until recently and it's turned a corner 
and it's going to be a huge, huge help. Let's hope Dylan Rivers lives up to his star ranking. Let's hope Devin Hunter lives up to his star ranking. Let's hope Caleb Farley can take the corner and and see what these guys can do. But it really is going to be it's Bud Foster's uh, you know finest hour. Let's see. Let's see if he if that's what he puts out there. All right, uh, let's let's call it. We've we spent a lot of time discussing these teams. I think we did pretty well, maybe except for Notre Dame trying to stick to the timeline. Hit us with anything on Twitter. It's 2DVT. It's also 2DVT at gmail.com for any questions or comments or anything you want to send us. And make sure to rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts if you have the chance. We're up to like nearly 60 ratings on there and pretty much a 5.0. So we appreciate everyone who's already done that. We're going to be putting out part two of this next week, maybe the week after, but probably next week. You're going to be getting some pretty consistent content from us up until the season starts just because we're going to do the second part of this. We're going to do our season preview. We're going to do our FSU preview. We might have a guest here or there. So just keep refreshing your feeds because we're going to be putting stuff out. And until next time, go Hokies. Go Hokies.